Well, 2024 is officially here. Man, it's going by fast already. It's an election year. It's potentially, hopefully, a farm bill year, and the landscape is, well, it's uncertain at best. Welcome back to Groundwork. I'm your host, Tom Sell. And if you are at all involved in the world of agricultural policy, I can almost guarantee you know our next guest. He's one of my favorite people. He's a Regents Fellow, Professor, Extension Economist, Co-Director of the Ag Food and Policy Center at Texas A&M University. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast, great friend, Dr. Joe Outlaw. Now, Dr. Outlaw is Co-Director of AFPC, as I said. He frequently interacts with members of Congress and key agricultural committee staff to provide analysis concerning the consequences of certain ag policy changes. He received his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees, all from Texas A&M University, all in agricultural economics. He's a master of these subjects, and he's re relied upon, as I said. Dr. Outlaw and his wife, Natalie, raised their family in College Station, Texas. Joe, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you. I, I think there's a lot to talk about. We're going to focus particularly on a study uh, that the Ag Food and Policy Center has has, has done uh, on examining the farm size and payment payment limits, which is always a big issue in any farm bill. And it's something that's, there's so many layers to, to unpack there. But maybe let's just start with, okay, we're in 2024, as I as I mentioned. I, I'd love to just hear your your um your predictions with respect to a farm bill, kind of what went wrong last year. There was a big effort to try and get a farm bill well done last <laughs> year, timely in place for the 24 crop year, didn't come together. Uh, how do things look look to you this year as we as we uh, get into this election year? Well, I, I you know, you know, because you heard me a lot and, and we disagreed for much of the year. Then you finally came around to my viewpoint. <laughs> um I just didn't feel like they were going to. And one of the reasons was, I mean, the Ag and Food Policy Center, we do work for the Congressional uh, Senate and Ag Committees, uh, House and Senate Ag Committees and staff. And and uh, for the most part, we didn't start getting asked the real questions that I've been. I mean, we've been doing this. Our center's 40 years old. I've been I've been with the center 37 uh, at various stages of my life. And we didn't start getting the real questions that staff like you when you were there yeah. would ask us until the summer. Yeah. So they didn't do, I mean, yes, they were doing some work and they did a lot of hearings and things, but they really, the staff was not really being pushed to come up with the hard questions. This is what we really need to do until summer. So whenever that September deadline came rolling around and, and Chairman Thompson, bless his heart, he wanted to get it done. Uh, I just had a feeling based on everything we'd been doing for the staff, House or Senate, that they just really weren't there yet. And it's one thing to say you've got to get floor time. And it's another thing to say, uh, frankly, it takes months to do this bill from when it's dropped to when it's signed by the president. The, Fastest in my memory has been nine months and, and, you know, getting it done in a few, getting a week of floor time in the house or Senate really didn't excite me whenever people were talking about that. So, yeah. you know, you keep most of that to yourself, but now that it happened, uh, I was right about 23 and I'll see, we'll see if I'm right about 24 okay. because while there's a little bit of rumblings that they want to get it done in 24, I don't expect it to be done in 24 unless something wild happens after the election. And even then, uh, if if 
House or Senate flips, it's going to be enough change that I don't think it will happen early in 25 mm -hmm. uh, either. So wow. by summer of 25 is what I'll be predicting. Now, oh, Joe. Now the, the, you, you're being thoroughly depressing here at the very beginning of the podcast. Uh, I, I'm sorry about that. I, I am going to, I'm going to, we're going to play like for the remainder of the po podcast. And I believe that we actually have a pretty good, pretty good uh, uh, shot at getting this done in 2024. I believe there's going to be increasing pressure because the farm economy is turning a bit, but I will concede you were right on 2023. And I think you hit a really important point, And that is farm bills are really a very analytical exercise. You need to dig into what's really going on in the ag economy. And the fact that you and and our listeners should all know that Joe is heavily relied upon in a bipartisan way. It's, it's you know, it is, you know, anyone who cares about ag policy, and, and there's a great network of centers across the U.S., um, other great universities in the extension system, in the ag research world that do great analysis. Joe is kind of top of that game. Uh, and that that very important work that is done. Uh, so the fact that you weren't really being asked the, the deep analytical questions early is, um, yeah, it was certainly a signal. So, but I'm hopeful. Speaking of analysis, um, y'all done some great work recently on this always divisive and challenging question of farm size and pay limits. And I really want to dig into that for our listeners because this is always an issue that bedevils uh, any any farm bill process. Um, and I maybe want to start with this question, Joe. Who is the intended beneficiary of of farm bill safety net programs? Is it really the farmer or is it more about the overall ag economy and ensuring we have a, a reliable food uh, production system for kind of core staple crops? So I, I, I probably gave you a leading question there. No, oh, you did, and I'm gonna I'm gonna change it around a little bit. And answer, my answer is a little bit different than uh, I I tell people. I've told people for most of my career that I think the farm bills for the consumer. Now, it's a it's a you know you have to be on your game to kind of follow the logic of that because you know if we keep the farmers around those that might have had a bad year and and been told well you're done by your bank. If we're able to provide a safety net that allows them to try again next year, then that keeps food prices from jumping all around and uh, it gives us stability. So to me, the ultimate beneficiary is a consumer. Um, you know, we, we go through these numbers all the time. We don't spend very much money on the safety net. And I, I got asked by a producer in, uh, where was I? Um, Ohio last, earlier this week. Um saying, you know, who do you think the farm bill's for? And my answer was, well, I think it's for the consumer, but I think you're asking me about what size the producer. Yeah. And he was. And I said, I think the farm bill is for all producers. And every producer has the opportunity to sign up for programs if they have program base and those types of things. Uh, it is not discriminatory to in that regard at all. But if you ask me who I think the legislators that I've worked for, for, as I've just said, about 37 years in different capacities uh, behind the scenes, if you ask me who I think they're trying to help, they're trying to help people who are trying to make a living farming. Yeah. And if we help the people who want to have a couple of chickens and some hogs on the side uh, along the way, fine. 
but we're not going to feed the, the this nation and a lot of others that we help feed by uh, worrying about part-time farmers as much as uh, some people in our government would like to worry about. Uh, that's that's really a, a, a great answer. In your paper, you 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 pull actually from a quote uh, from Secretary Vilsack, our current Secretary of Agriculture, when he was before the House Ag Committee in 2016. I'm going to read part of this quote just because I think it it sets this up so well. This is Secretary Vilsack. He said, every one of us that is not a farmer is not a farmer because we have farmers. We de delegate the responsibility of feeding our families to a relatively small percentage of this country. If you look at 85%, of what has grown in this country, it's raised by 200,000 to 300,000 people. That's out of a nation of 330 million. 200,000 to 300,000 people, that's less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of America. But the other 99% of us can be lawyers and doctors and Peace Corps volunteers and economists and people that work for the government and all the other occupations because we never think about it. Well, gee, do I actually have to grow food for my family? No, I go to the grocery store and I get it. That is the blessing that 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 the, our nation's farmers, this nation of farmers that has grown from these kind of rural communities, uh, uh, gives us all um, every day. And I, I just I, I love that quote. I think it captures it so well. This this notion that you know ag policy. There's more to it. It's not just about handing over dollars to farmers in the form of a safety net. It's about um, providing a foundation for this this great rural economy and empowering these farm families to endure the tough times, just like you said. Comments on that? No, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I just wish uh, um, I felt like the administration, the current administration, really believed that still. And you know, there's not. There's not been any, a lot of things come out. I mean, the 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 hearing he did, the, the secretary did last year in front of the one of the House or Senate, talking about uh, you know that we're basically worried, we're wondering about whether we want to uh, keep going down the track we're going with fewer but larger farms. <clears throat> you know that that calls into question uh, the statement that he previously made. But frank frankly. The, we couldn't we couldn't feed ourselves that the other way anyway. So I guess what I'm saying is, there's a mixed messages. Uh, obviously, everyone wants to help agriculture, but it's it's uh, uh, if if I'll put it this way: if you want to have a lot of part time farmers and niche markets and things like that, but if you're if you want to compete in the bulk market commodity world that we are with most of our production in agriculture. You've got to be low cost, and I know that we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But but the cost matters, and if you want to compete and you want to be competitive in world, international markets, you you've got to be low cost. And the, unfortunately, one of the ways to do that is to increase the size and and drive down your 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 fixed costs. So you hit on a, a great point there. Um, even even big advocates for for farm policy, and you know, I certainly put. Tom Vilsack in, in that category. He's been a, he's been a great advocate through the years. Chuck Grassley from Iowa and others. We get hung up on this issue of of, of size. Um, so maybe just talk a little bit. Why has pain limits been such an issue in farm policy for so many years? Obviously, we love the notion of the American family farm, but isn't it those family farms that are just having to get bigger to compete? Uh, based yeah, on that, that's the, the the big deal to me is, and I 
again, I've, I've, I've been grilled by the Senator and I've been grilled by many people on this question in hearings and they don't like my answer. Uh, my answer is that, that, that payment limits in particular are a social issue. They're social policy. You're deciding that some level, the government knows what level is the right amount to protect America's farms. Um, that is social engineering policy to the to to the hundredth degree. I told them in the hearings on every time I've ever testified that I didn't believe that there was such thing as somebody who could come up with the right number for that number. And I didn't think we needed to have a limit in the first place. And yeah, obviously, depending upon how much people believe in things, they, they could firmly disagree with me. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to have a productive agriculture, you're going to have to allow farms to get bigger and take advantage of cost economies. And I know that means that maybe the neighbor gets squeezed out, but you know what? When they get squeezed out, they're getting more for their land than they probably ever dreamed they were going to get for that land. And they're not getting squeezed out. They're just basically uh, not finding that they're as competitive as anymore because they chose not to get bigger. Uh, yeah, it is a it is an argument that is hard to it's payment limits are not an economic argument is my answer they are a social argument and that's kind of where I like to draw the line. Yeah, well that that's a good line. So just you know we do have some lines that a lot of people want to draw on that. So like a big current issue in farm policy debates right now is you know should China be able to own our land farmland um, and. Almost every politician you go down the line will say, "No, we gotta, we gotta end that practice." That is a, that is a, a, a form of kind of, uh, uh, social engineering. We, we want, we love the American family farm. We don't like corporate agriculture. There's all, there's been this notion of, of corporate agriculture or corporate farms taking over. Talk about that a little bit, Joe. Is, is corporate farm even really a reality, or is this <laughs> really just family farms getting bigger? No, in fact, I, I was recently uh, sent a nasty email after one of my Southern Act Today articles that Bart and I did uh, talking about should we, shouldn't we focus the amount of re the limited resources we have in this country to help agriculture? Should we, shouldn't it be focused on, on real farmers? And the, I had a reader from, from Oklahoma. I, I, like, I love saying that because Bart's from Oklahoma. Uh, who took exceptions to the fact that I thought that anybody with uh, more than just a few cows and, and acres was a corporate farm. And I was a, and I was told that I was a huge supporter of corporate agriculture. And I had to use facts with them. And I said, well, in this country, we have a, only about two or three percent of all the farms are corporate owned. What you have is you have a lot of family farms that have chosen to get bigger and maybe they have a maybe they've incorporated as a tax management scheme, but not as a matter of practice of how their farm is run. Yeah. It is a family operation. Most people in this country that are actually involved in agriculture understand that 100 percent. It's the outside people who hear corporate agriculture and, and my my easy fast answer to anybody who says that we've gone to corporate agriculture, I say that's a falsehood. Walmart looked into it and the profits weren't good enough for them to be messing with it. So that's never going to happen. Man, thank you. Thanks for bringing facts to to that argument. It's what we're doing here today. And I, I would say, 
tell me this right or wrong. This is just a conversation. Most of the corporate ag culture that exists in the U.S. is in specialty crops. It's like wine, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Almost all of it. The Del Monte's of the world that, that kind of have ownership up the value chain and are marketing a brand. That's that's where you find corporate ag culture. But in traditional staple crops, row crops, corn, wheat, uh, you know, rice, it's, it is almost, almost none. Yeah. yeah. Almost none. Thank you for uh, the, the, that's, and we've both spent a lot of time all over the nation huh. talking to farms and it's just what we see. And, and there's a lot of competition out there for land. And I guarantee if, if major corporations were coming in, you would hear Helen from the countryside, uh, blessed Helen. We, we'd, we'd love it. Righteous Helen. Right. All right. Um, well, maybe this, in your study, you do an incredible job of kind of tracking the history of of pay limits and actually when they were first set, which was a long time ago. Yep. Uh, could you talk a little bit about just how that has changed over time? Like, just a simple question, and you address this in the study. If you were to apply an inflation factor to the pay limits that were set back in decades ago when these were first set, you know, what would pay limits today versus what what are the reality? Can you just go into some of that? Yeah, you know, payment limits basically were set in the 30s. Uh, and then most of the people would say the modern pay limits that we think about today were established in the, in the 70s. And frankly, uh, the $55,000 per crop deal they put in place with, with, with inflation, if, they'd, if we'd kept up with inflation on just that 55,000 number, today we'd be looking at $413,000 yeah. per crop and, and uh, that was yeah per crop <laughs> so so the, the reality is 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 that it, a, a normal farmer would be a over a million over a million dollar uh uh payment limit because most farmers are growing more than one crop right? yes right yeah. right so 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 frankly uh we haven't kept up and and if 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 a person wanted to uh really challenge the government on this, I think they probably have some standing because uh, I don't think, I have read everything, I would say 95% of all the literature on payment limits. And at the end of the day, it's always somebody coming up with a number. There's no basis that's been used. It's somebody came up with a politically acceptable number. And that's what we use in this country, which is really, Unfortunate because a lot of times that number is contingent upon how much funds that we have in the in the baseline, which is another argument. And it kind of, uh, you know, it, it's it it seems silly that we have these conversations whenever people are risking millions of dollars putting in crops, and we're going to worry about whether we're going to guarantee them one hundred twenty five thousand on their entity. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, uh, it's better than nothing. But to some and many, and in fact, more and more, Tom, I'm finding real producers in this country who are saying they've moved out of the the uh, Title One programs because of these limits being so yeah. so binding that it it it's, doesn't make it worth time filling out paperwork for FSA for USDA, and they'll just participate in crop insurance. Yeah, which is which is they're right, but it's also sad that we pushed them that way. Yeah, I, I agree. These the the FSA programs become more and more complicated. Okay, you so right. So, it, inflation adjustment four hundred thirteen thousand per crop, but now the overall limit per farm is one twenty five. And there are some ways to, you know, if you have a husband and wife or 
you you can double that to 250 still far short of what an inflation adjustment would be and obviously these these payments only happen we need to just clarify in in bad times this is not just like a yearly thing this these are kind of cyclical payments that when commodity markets crash or when there's just an uh, an awful uh, storm and 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 local farm income is 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 way down then these payments um can can kick in um but i i think you know yeah the points you hit are just are just so good and, and so well made there's also been some talk you know through the years about you know equity and farm policy a lot of kind of divisive arguments that go out some argue joe that you know, the, these programs are mainly done for the traditional row crops, the staple crops, the corn, the wheat, the beans, uh, the, the the rice, the peanuts, the cotton. Um, and at times, even like Secretary Johans, uh, Secretary under the Bush administration, um, uh, made a big deal of equity in farm policy. And why are we not supporting, uh, you know, blueberry and, and, and raisin farmers in the same way or, or other kind of specialty crops? Uh, contract crops, largely small, you know, short season. Why are they treated differently? Why do we have these special programs for uh, the, the the row crop farmers versus the specialty crops? Well, I think I think most of it, I, again, this is Joe Outlaw's answer, and it, I could be uh, educated, uh, but my answer on that is that when all the programs, when these programs we're talking about, the Title I programs that ARC and PLC type programs that have been around. When those first came into being, uh, most of the problems we were having was re with regard to trade and trade impacts. And on the specialty crops, most of the specialty crops at that time and over time have largely been a domestic market issue. And so it was up to the domestic market to kind of Hey, if we got too many potatoes, we're going to plop to make potatoes up type thing. Yeah, uh, and and you don't really do with that with corn and beans and whatever else cotton because it's storable. And when it, most of our bulk commodities, we're 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 competing against the entire world who's chosen to to grow those on the specialty crop side to degree more now than ever. Uh, that it hasn't been the case, but but but. Now it's more than ever. And I guess that to me has always been the line of thinking of why they were different. Yeah. I'm sure there's other differences that I'm not thinking of, but but that was a real big deal was that we've always, since the 30s, we've been impacted by what other countries do on the on these other staple commodities. That's right. Yeah, the, the era of kind of modern transportation. I think that's right. And, and all these commodities, the traditional commodities, are traded uh, on the board and they are subject to, there is truly a world, market price right. for corn for beans whereas the the prices for you know special crops usually are more set by kind of local markets and how far are you to the market and what is the market what are the people demanding today is it is it is right. it this crop this crop or that so yeah i, I appreciate you going through that just because there is a rationale and then and there's quite frankly there's a rationale behind all of this agricultural policy. It's why even on Farm Policy Facts, we try and have this 101 document refresh to say, why is this section of the Farm Bill there? And why is that there? What are the many blessings that we should all be counting uh, because of the work that the Farm Bill does, this important package of legislation 
to promote a dynamic and technologically driven agricultural sector that meets our nations and quite frankly the world's leads the world's uh, uh lead us, leads us in meeting the world's needs uh in terms of production uh agriculture so it really is an amazing thing it's what we're all about here on on foreign policy facts and trying to unpack this joe any any closing thoughts i just i want i want to say how much we appreciate you and your 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 leadership and your great analytical work uh, on these issues to help may help the lawmakers make 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 quality decisions any kind of closing thoughts on these these uh well there, there's two things i want to bring up one is uh, i i love the fact payment limits have been an issue for quite some time and i i believe it was senator harkin from iowa's one initially that said that uh spouses were not people if you recall that conversation um i love that i was doing i've been doing meetings i love going into meetings full of spouses whether it was male or female and telling them you don't matter uh you don't count and you shouldn't get you shouldn't get your work on the farm does not count for anything and you shouldn't get a limit according to a senator a former senator from the midwest oh uh, that was one of my favorite i mean when you're an economist, if you have any kind of sense of humor, you're a different duck anyway. <laughs> uh, but that was, I, I love doing that kind of stuff. In fact, our textbooks that we teach out of, and then I taught your son out of, yeah. uh, most of the textbooks are written that we'd be way better off with any kind of, without any kind of government intervention. You know what? And I would be fine with that if the rest of the world would start first. But why is it up to the American farmer to bear the brunt of we're going to get do away with all of our stuff and we hope other people do as well, which has never happened. Yeah. And and so I and I'm glad that Bart being our being the other co-director with me, it was it was important whenever I was looking to see who was going to come in and help me do this stuff that you have to have an appreciation for what the American farmer is doing. And the fact that we need to do this when China can spend $100 billion a year on their agriculture, yeah, we're yeah. spending about five or six on, on the same types of programs. Uh, you know, we've got to have a, a fair ground for producers to try to compete with. I mean, they don't need to be fighting with both hands tied behind their back. And so probably the thing I'm most proud of in doing all this for so long, Tom, is that I can truly say that I haven't done anything that I thought was not to the benefit of farmers. Yeah. And, and our, and our great nation too, right? Which is the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you, man. And I love your passion and, and that's what has bled out through your years of, of, of service. We hope you keep going for many, many more. Joe, it's been a pleasure. It was excellent. I've no doubt our listeners enjoyed the conversation just as much as I did. It's certainly going to be interesting to see how this year plays out. I got to say, I hope you're wrong. I hope we get this thing done in 2024. I hope we can get over some of these divisive issues like, like pay limits and do right by our nation's farmers for the good of this world. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Groundwork. I'm your host, Tom Sell. <laughs>